Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Someone once gave me this piece of advice and I thought it was brilliant, is you just have to strike that balance and think very carefully about how much of the time you're going to spend snorkeling and how much of the time you're going to spend scuba diving. Mm -hmm. And it was a brilliant analogy that I remember to this day. Initially, you have to do a little bit of that scuba diving because you need to just get a lay of the land. And when the scale and scope of the job is so big, that can take a little bit of time. So thinking about it in advance is very helpful. Don't spend a lot of time there. You immediately have to come up and then your job is to snorkel. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. How do you prepare to join the C-suite after years of working as a marketing leader? We wrap up our final episode from the 2023 Deloitte University Next Generation CMO Academy with a roundtable panel discussion with three guests. Brad Hiranaga, the Chief Brand Officer of Cotopaxi, Erica Taylor, Genentech's Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer, and Lisa Matarazzo, the Group Vice President of Marketing at Toyota Motor North America. Here's a bit about each of our guests. Brad Hiranaga is a returning guest to the podcast. He joined me in 2021 while as Chief Marketing Officer at General Mills, where he spent 18 years. Now a year into his new role as CMO for Cotopaxi, a sustainable outdoor apparel brand, Brad looks to build on the mission of the founder who, fun fact, named the company after a volcano in the Andes in central Ecuador. Erica Taylor is Genentech's first CMO. Erica actually worked at Genentech for 10 years before leaving to join another pharmaceutical giant, Gilead. Erica returned to Genentech in 2021 and was promoted to CMO in 2022. Here's another first about Erica. She is the first CMO on our show with a PhD in immunology and from Stanford, no less. Lisa has spent over two decades at Toyota with a brief intermission at AOL and Build-A-Bear before returning and growing to become the Group Vice President of Toyota Division Marketing at Toyota Motor North America in 2021. Raised in a car fanatic family, it's just perfect that Lisa leads marketing for such an iconic auto and truck brand, Toyota. Let's get this going. My guests share how they prepared for the C-suite, what they got right and wrong, how they deal with imposter syndrome, We recorded this in front of a live audience, and we will go to the audience for their questions. Here's Brad, Erica, and Lisa. So, you three, do you feel welcome? Yeah. Absolutely. You're you're ready? Room full of musicians. This is great. Isn't this good? Okay, so, but the first thing I want to do is, introductions are usually boring. So, let's try to break that mold. So I'm going to ask you a question to get us started, and it's targeted to each one of you. And Erica, I'm going to start with you. Erica, are you more Barbie or Oppenheimer? 
They've gotten no prep for this, by the way. I don't believe in prep. Oppenheimer. Why? Because I'm a nerd. I know you are. <laughs> I like the idea of taking on something as massive and even as life-changing and perhaps even dangerous as splitting the atom. Wow. That's raising your standards. <laughs> okay, let's go to Brad. More Taylor Swift or Beyonce? Oh, well, I was going to say Barbie, but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm more I'm I'm Team Taylor. Yeah, why? I mean, it's recency probably, but and I didn't get to go, but everyone that's been to the the concert said it's been life changing, and you rarely hear that of going to like a musical festival or some events, and so just talking to friends and people who are especially the younger generation, how influenced they are in a positive way. Yep. The things that uh, that she's doing and saying, I think is, is pretty remarkable. So what can, this is for the whole panel, what can we learn from those two entertainers about brand building? I mean, they, they when you can go by one name. Yeah, there you go, right? You've arrived. You know what else I, I love about them? And I'll give you a lead here. Incredibly fan-centric. Mm. Yeah. Right? Their fans have a name. And they are about their fans. When they show up on that stage, they don't quit. They bring it all, no matter what the weather is, how they feel. They're, they're you know, consumer centricity, fan centricity. Yeah, the experiences created are pretty remarkable. I mean, the example of, uh, I don't know how many people I knew that were making wristbands to go and trade. And the fact that they're creating that experience, not only with the relationship that you have with the artist, but with one another that's in yeah. like creating yep. a community yeah. is pretty cool. So Lisa, yes. you're from Toyota, Sam. More Mission Impossible or Indiana Jones? Ooh, I would say Mission Impossible. Mm -hmm. Why? Oh, well, I'm a Tom Cruise fan. But beyond that, <laughs> um, cooler gadgetry. <laughs> no, yeah. I just, uh, I love that franchise. Uh, I love the characters. And I really do like the innovative, um, a bit more innovative. Okay, now I'd like each of you to say one thing that is special about your company that attracted you and keeps you there. Just one thing. And as you do that, say a bit about your company. Just keep it brief. Erica. Yes, Genentech. So our, our tagline is we're in business for life. Um, what I love about that is that we are passionate about patients. We're passionate about people. Uh, it's a great culture and get to make something that in some cases changes people's lives. Pretty good. Lisa. With Toyota and uh, I really admire the company because they have a purpose that goes far beyond building cars. They build great cars, but their mission and their history is really centered around bettering society. So a, a higher purpose there that I think is, is very admirable. By the way, these two have an interesting career path. They both worked at those companies and left and came back and became CMO. So that's, we'll get into that a little bit later. Brad, one thing that's special that attracted you and keeps you. So Code Epoxy, uh, our purpose is moving people to do good. Uh, it's an outdoor gear and apparel company. The thing that drew me to it, it is a business model that has doing good hardwired into it. Now I'd like you to talk about what you are frequently told by colleagues and bosses that is your greatest strength as a leader, human being. And then I want, to, I want you to tell, tell us if you agree with that. Lisa, you want to start? Communication. I've been told that pretty consistently that I'm a good communicator. I would agree with that. I attribute it a little bit to my Italian heritage and just 
enjoying talking, but it, it, it is, it is key. And then early on in my career, uh, I was a financial consultant. So I, being able to communicate with clients, obviously in a selling capacity is key. Pretty good. Brad. I would say for me, and I share a similar background with working for a big CPG mm -hmm. company that knows how to do a lot of, do a lot of things well, but one of the things that's always a struggle is thinking further ahead and, and trying to understand what's going to happen in the future. And so trying to have one foot there and then one foot in reality and bridging those things is, is somewhere that I feel is a sweet spot for me. So trying to find roles that can, I can do that is, mm -hmm. is where I like to be. Brad was at General Mills for many years, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Erica. I get told a lot that I have a lot of energy mm -hmm. and I don't know how to be any other way. So I don't, I guess I agree with that. It's just sort of my, whatever that frequency at which I operate. I think when that translates itself into um, setting a vision and being inspiring and setting something that a, an organization will get behind and throw resources and time and their own energy behind, I think is, is a strength of mine. I'm going to ask you now a question I learned from the Union Square Hospitality Group. Danny Myers Group, big restaurant company, and very, very consumer-centric. In their interviews, they always ask their candidates, what's one misconception about you? And I think it's a very thoughtful question. So I'd like us now to go there. So Brad, why don't you start? What's one misconception about you? I think on the, in marketing and in the, in the role that everyone's striving for, being a CMO, you definitely want to have the perception that you're driving ideas forward and that you're kind of pushing the company and you're creating culture and all the great things that come from that role. One of the things that sometimes you get painted with is those you, you don't understand the mechanics of driving the business. And so I think having that kind of the rigor and the, and the ability to, to know how to operate a P&L, to know how to drive the business objectives is really critical. And so I think always kind of showing that you can do both of those things is, is a constant balancing act. And I think oftentimes if you're put into the CMO camp, you can kind of be seen as like, they're just, they're just doing the marketing stuff versus like, no, you're mm -hmm. running the business. So that's been a misconception about you at points in your career? Yeah, for sure. Because mm -hmm. I feel like I flexed into harder into, into leaning into more CMO. I, you know, you got to flex for the role sometimes and I'd flex harder into that because that was differentiating for me. Yeah. 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 Got it. Erica, a misconception about you? I think that, uh, especially now as a CMO, I think people see me and think that um, everything has always worked. And either jobs I've gotten or paths that I've taken and that I had some deliberate sort of goal to reach CMO, which I didn't, by the way, we can talk about that. And I, it's, it's just not true. I, I feel like there's more, um, I tell people there's more jobs I've not gotten than gotten. Mm -hmm. There are more places I've been where I'm quote, not supposed to be than ever feeling like I've got two solid feet and I'm, you know, there. And then I struggle with the same things that my most junior marketers struggle with. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure always that I belong in the rooms that I'm in. And I think people translate the energy into thinking somehow that I've got things figured out and no, most days, no. <laughs> Lisa? I would say at times people may assume I'm impulsive because I've made decisions that are very non-traditional. And the truth is I'm very deliberate, very calculated, and every move I make is, is for a purpose. What's an example of a decision you made that was considered <coughs> non-traditional? I would say leaving Toyota. Oh, yeah. No yeah, one that, leaves Toyota. You don't leave Toyota. <laughs> you don't leave Toyota. And then, and then come back. Yeah. And, and it was actually very well thought out. And everyone, of course, thought I was crazy. But 
I don't regret it a bit. And I'm convinced that it helped me get where I am now. That's a good segue into the next section, which is getting prepared to be in the C-suite. So let me ask the audience, put your hands up if you've ever had imposter syndrome. Okay, come unanimous. I'm friends. Have you all had <laughs> imposter syndrome? For sure. Yeah, of course. How do you deal with it? We all have it. And especially, I think, in this discipline. It's so dynamic. It's so fast moving. So when you have that feeling like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not sure I should be here. I'm not sure I'm up to this. How do you deal with that? So it is absolutely natural. It happens to everyone. If they tell you that it doesn't, they're lying. Obviously, right? <laughs> Just kind of take a deep breath. Remind yourself why, you know, everything you've done to get to this point. Take a minute, reflect on your accomplishments. And then when it's at its worst, this is when it ha helps to have a network of people. I say phone a friend. If you have a mentor, if you have an executive coach, if you have someone that you can just talk through with it, don't dwell on it. Make it five, 10 minutes of your day and then move on. Fabulous. Erica, anything to add to that? Plus one to all of that. I think for me, it's just, you just do it anyway. I mean, you're there. You might as well stay. Part of my um, way to get around that, and especially when I'm in rooms where I feel a little bit intimidated, is to try to think of the best possible question I could ask, um, which does a couple of things. It gets me out of my head and focuses me on whatever the conversation or whatever the decision needs to be made. It forces me to do a little bit of the one foot today, one foot in tomorrow, and really just mm -hmm. try to think of the best possible question that I can ask. And that, that at least puts me in a learning frame, um, gets me out of the you know, need to impress anyone with anything. And um, sort of it's a distraction that gets me sort of through those, those moments. The phone of friends help a lot as well. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think the network thing is huge, yeah. like going talking to people that you trust. You know, being vulnerable gets harder as you get further in your career, harder as you get, you know, ex expectations change. But I actually think that even at that, whenever you're in your career, that vulnerability can pay so many dividends when you're, if you're open about what you're feeling, what, what struggles you're having, where you may be feeling something like imposter syndrome. So I think like being vulnerable, it's amazing when you take that first step, usually you get it back like two or three fold. Someone else is vulnerable to you. And then you start to kind of realize that everyone's navigating the same kind of murkiness as they're going through their career and their life. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Lisa and Erica, you both left your companies. Genentech and Toyota, and you came back later as CMO. You came back right in the role as CMO, you, right? I came back in a different role, then became CMO. Then became, but it was fast. Yeah, yeah. It was fast. You came back, and several years later, you became CMO. So I'd like you to talk about when you got that decision, that discussion that you were going to be elevated, promoted to CMO, did you feel prepared? And is there anything that you think you could have been better prepared for? if you had to wind the clock back? Lisa. I did feel mostly prepared, but you step into the role and suddenly you realize the scale of it. And it's inevitable you have that moment where you're overwhelmed. I think 
because I spent a fair amount of time thinking about it, it helped in the transition. The biggest key to success in that that first 30, 60 days is someone once gave me this piece of advice and I thought it was brilliant, is you just have to strike that balance and think very carefully about how much of the time you're going to spend snorkeling and how much of the time you're going to spend scuba diving. Mm -hmm. And it was a brilliant analogy that I remember to this day. Initially, you have to do a little bit of that scuba diving because you need to just get a lay of the land. And when the scale and scope of the job is so big, that can take a little bit of time. So thinking about it in advance is very helpful. Don't spend a lot of time there. You immediately have to come up and then your job is to snorkel. So when you say snorkeling, it's leading a large team or seeing the whole, describe snorkeling Le- versus scuba. Yeah, kind of staying at this higher level and leading the team. I mean, you're focused on the vision and where you need to take the team. You have to know a certain amount about what's going on across your department, but you can't get bogged down in the details. And I think a little bit of a blessing and a curse if you came up through the organization and you've held those more operational positions and you've liked them Mm -hmm. a lot, it is harder to extract yourself Mm -hmm. from that. Um, I'm guilty of that. I love media. I would have kept doing the media job. (laughs) But you, you really quickly have to pull away from that and understand what your job is. Your job is to lead the team. Your job is to set the vision. Your job is to be the snowplow, clear the obstacles out of the way, and motivate your team. And if you are in the details, that's not going to happen, and you're going to annoy a lot of people. Did you feel prepared, Erica? To be a CMO? Not really. I mean, it, it's, you know, I'm in a different industry. You know, CMOs are not typically common in, in, in biotech. They're starting to become a little bit more so. Um, I'm the first CMO, so the job didn't exist. So, yeah, I wasn't sort of working toward it because it didn't exist. One of the things that I think did help me in terms of leaving and then coming back is I got to see marketing in a different organization. So I went to a another biotech company. I worked on COVID in COVID. So it was, it, it was marketing on like in a Ferrari, like you just had to go so fast. It's every job I ever had. I was, you know, to your point around snorkeling versus scuba diving, I'm going to use that. Having to do a little bit of everything at the same time, getting a peek at what is possible in the realm of marketing for medicines and then bringing that back to Genentech, I think, helped prepare me for this, this role and having a different perspective. I think the other thing, um, you know, I, I grew up in Genentech. I'm a scientist by training. And so my point of view on the entire sort of value chain from understanding the nuances of a signaling cascade and building a medicine and getting that into a patient is just, I think, a little bit unique. And one of the things for me that is sort of my burning platform that had I not had that perspective would have maybe been different is the nature of our industry, science and making medicines is changing. And maybe I got really up close to that, you know, looking at a medicine, uh, the first FDA approved medicine for COVID and how quickly that had to happen and thinking about what that might mean for our future. 
to me, the burning platform is we cannot do marketing the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, there's, there's a piece of that that's so clear to me in terms of, you know, snorkeling and being able to leave in an organization to get to get to that point um, where we can make sure that we, we get access to medicines when, when they're available. Coming in as the first CMO, I mean, how did you design your job? How prescriptive was your CEO about it? Not very. Not very. <clears throat> did you have uh, an outcome? Did you have any ambition? Uh, the ambition that was set before me was to build a world-class marketing organization. Sure. Okay. Anybody could say that. There isn't anything particularly differentiated about that. But that was sort of the, the vision that was set before me. Uh, was it Norm yesterday was talking about um, preparing to interview for a CMO role. And one of the things that as I was interviewing for the role that I didn't do well enough early on, I, I picked up quickly that I had to do this, is set a vision for it. And you have to strike this balance between listening to the organization, really learning, doing the sensing, and then having your own point of view and um, the vision casting for how we're going to do marketing. Um, Things like, I don't think we need the size of the organization in the future as we have currently and having a point of view on that. How do we get there? How do we build efficiencies and digital transformation? All the words that we all know um, for that. So Lisa, you left, learned some things, came back worked in some operational jobs before becoming CMO. How defined was your job when you came in? How much, uh, I don't know, freedom did you have to reconstruct it, reorient it? It was fairly defined. The position had been in place for a very long time. I think the one thing, though, that was interesting is I came into the role during COVID, during the end of COVID. So, I mean, all industries, but especially automotive was completely disrupted by COVID. So I did have the flexibility to make changes. And and that was very exciting because the digital, the migration to digital alone in that time, we always knew it was coming and we had been preparing for it, but suddenly the need to accelerate all of our efforts, not only our advertising efforts, but our digital retailing solutions, the way we interfaced with our dealer associations and dealers, all of that had to move much, much faster. Because of that, it required changes in the organization. And fortunately, I had the support to do that and the flexibility to do that. Brad, let's turn to you. You were at General Mills, which is how old is that company? Like 160 years old or something? Yeah, about that, yeah. So you were CMO and in an established CPG firm. Mm-hmm. People had been in the role before you. So you came into that role and now you're CMO of a 10-year-old company mm-hmm. and maybe the first CMO? First CMO, yeah. Yeah, okay. So talk about your General Mills promotion when you became CMO there. Did you feel prepared? And if not, what areas did you have to get up to speed on? Yeah, uh, well, and I'd been, so I'd been at General Mills probably about, I don't know, 13-ish years before mm-hmm. I got that promotion. So I came in through regular business school track and did all the, the rotations that CPG companies are amazing at doing. My career track there was a little bit different because, and not, not that I decided it, it was just kind of happened where I would move from more established kind of line jobs back and forth into more kind of marketing innovation roles. So as digital was becoming a thing where we were trying to figure out how to apply it and advertise more in it, I was kind of in the epicenter of that. So timing was a little bit fortuitous. So most of the jobs that I had was about transformation. It's like, oh, take this thing that you learned in digital and apply it into this brand and now come back and learn this thing and now apply it here. 
So I, I had the luxury of, of always kind of being like a, a, applying things that were innovative onto a more established business. And so when there was a shakeup at the top, I was not expecting to get pulled into that job. I was kind of just doing my thing, uh, you know, running a very nice pizza rolls and pizza business. Uh, delicious, by the way. And so I got called for it and they said, hey, we want you to come take this role. The gentleman who had had a, one previous Mark Addicts is like mm -hmm. a legend and one yeah. of my favorite people in the world and a mentor. Yeah. I had had a close relationship with him, so I kind of knew what the role would be. But as I got into it, they were like, hey, this is about transformation. All of the stuff that you've done now apply it more at a, at a scale. So the at scale was where I was a bit nervous because I was like, I'm not sure like all these capabilities and how to lead them and run them. I hadn't come from a, like a discipline like media where I had that deep expertise, but I did have those kind of two feet in what foot in each world. So mm -hmm. that's where for me, I could add the most value. So I did feel relatively prepared mm -hmm. for that role. Being in an overseas suite team and all those things, I had to learn that on the fly. Um, and I was probably a little more junior in my career for that, but actually the application of the practice, I felt pretty good about. Different than this job, this job has a founder, a guy named Davis Smith, who is amazing as a people leader and as an entrepreneur and as a brand builder, even though I don't think he'd call himself that. And so coming into this, it, it was a different challenge of like more of creating the role, taking a brand that I think is a really already pretty remarkable, great brand, even though it's very young and new. And it's the challenge of working with a founder is to say, okay, well, this is what your vision was. Like, is that still the vision of where we want to go with this? And how is it changing and how is it evolving? And how are we thinking about moving and scaling and, and, and being different? And, you know, every job I think you come into, you have similar challenges and there's those different ones. I laugh because at General Mills, when I was there, we were trying to figure out how to do big campaigns and then take and how to how to get into e-commerce, how to do performance marketing. And then I come into this role and it's like, well, we know how to do that. Now we need to do big campaigns and be cultural. And so and there's there's challenges to making those shifts in each places. But I think one of the things is, is that I've learned taking two dramatically different jobs is there is enough application where you can step into different things and pull enough skills with you that you can then kind of figure out the other parts that you don't know, which is which is the fun part, too. How defined was your role when you came into Code Epoxy? Not very defined. It was kind of like build a world-class marketing organization. <laughs> yeah. No, it wasn't, no. <laughs> it wasn't exactly like that, but similar. And so it's been defining it as, as we go. I mean, a little bit of, you know, I've moved. And the great thing about small companies is the fluidity happens really easily. Mm -hmm. I was telling someone last night, like I, I was always preparing to hear as a marketer, no, at, at a big company. And I'm always now I'm prepared to hear yes. And also this and this and this and this. And so it's just a different mm -hmm. um, ability, but to make change quickly because of the size and the speed, it's much easier to do that. Um, but there's implications that come with that when you say yes to everything too. Yeah. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website. And then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. You came into the C-suite. The job was not well-defined or well-defined in your case. How did you shift to be more of a enterprise leader? Your relationship with other disciplines, your relationship with the business units, your relationship with the outside world, whether it's shareholders, agencies, so was that intentional on your part? Did you say, aha, 
tomorrow I'm going to be an enterprise leader. I need to shift how I work, how I show up, what I focus on. So talk a bit about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll start. I, the role I had immediately prior to being a chief marketing officer was a, a global um, strategy lead for oncology, so our, our global oncology portfolio. And it forces you to think at the, the enterprise level, um, this particular role set at our global organization. So you had everything from our research and early development all the way through to business uh, development and deal making. And in some respects, it, it sort of, you know, cracks your mind open of like all the other things that happen across the business. But in that, being able to understand how finance thinks about things, how our legal department thinks about things, how our scientists think about things, even though I haven't, you know, been at the bench in a very long time. And so coming into this role, I appreciate having had the experience of, of leading a, a portfolio in an organization that loves to swan dive and <laughs> silo itself. Mm. And some of my early conversations as I was onboarding into the role with business leaders um, that led certain parts of our, our therapeutic areas was zero sort of understanding about the broader um, happenings across our portfolio. And to me, the striking difference there was like, oh, okay. I've really got to settle into this enterprise leadership role because the folks that are leading the businesses, rightfully so, are scuba diving mm -hmm. into their businesses. Someone has got to be able to pull everybody up and say, this, this investment doesn't make any sense here if we can't apply it over here. Like that is my, my seat to, to play. Yeah. yeah. Lisa, how about yourself? I would say the, the switch in how I showed up did come pretty quickly. It was very intentional. I think you have to be intentional about it. Um, once you understand what your role is, you need to spend your time connecting with your peers and looking three steps ahead. So, you know, the first thing I did, not uncommon when you step into a new role, but I would say more important once you get to the C-suite you need to go on that listening tour. You really need to understand what other areas are prioritizing, what they're focused on. The great benefit of working at Toyota is they tend to ro rotate people around the company so you can get a broader perspective on the business. That was infinitely helpful in stepping into the role. Didn't solve any everything, but it really created that awareness of, I need to talk to these folks again, especially during COVID when there were some big hairy problems we needed to solve. They couldn't be solved individually. They needed to be solved collectively. So having that outreach was really important and again, very intentional. Brad, how about yourself? At General Mills and now go to Poxy. You know, I think uh, for sure there's a different elevation when you get into those roles and the kinds of questions that you're working on, the problems you're solving change dramatically and you do have to kind of pivot. And there's not, there was not a ton of preparation for that of like, okay, here's how you go into the C-suite and here's the things that you now ask and here's how you, how you operate. And so you do have to be pretty quick at like kind of picking up and understanding how you need to pivot a bit. But what I will say is that there are pieces to it that definitely come from being a brand builder that you can apply to how you think about that leadership team. So, you know, for instance, a lot of us, as we're like working on marketing plans, there's always a sense of orchestration. Like you're always orchestrating an insight into a strategy, into an idea, into media and activation in some way. And so it just kind of elevates in a different way. 
because as I entered into it, I, and I kept it really basic for myself. I was like, okay, like we need, there's always silos that are happening in any organization, but we need to kind of orchestrate ourselves around the most basic premise of like the four P's. So that means that the R&D person, the finance person, the salesperson, and I probably need to work better together. Mm -hmm. And actually for all the things where, when I was more downstream in a more junior position, I was always complain about like, why does R&D do this or sales doesn't do that? Like we can actually impact that change and creating that cohesion there is like the most beneficial thing that you can do for any organization. That's at a big company. I'd say the same thing applies even at a small company. Like I'm working very closely as our a commercial team to like we're creating a whole nother go-to-market process. And it only works if all of us are aligned on how to do it. And then it, and then it cascades down onto all of our people. And that's where I think that's the value that's added versus me coming in saying, hey, look at the marketing campaign. It's 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 yeah. less about that. Yeah, yeah. So I agree with all that. And um, <clears throat> I'll share a quick story as we transition to the audience. When I got promoted at PNG, I was working in a bullpen right before the promotion with the team. I got promoted. And at that time, we, we tore it apart shortly after I came into the C-suite. But we had an executive floor, you know, with the paneling and the carpeting. And I walked into my office. It was enormous. There were two secretaries. Did I need two secretaries? There was a door that I had a button that I can open and close. And there was a panic button if something happened in my office and security would arrive. It was like, this is weird. <laughs> and I felt, you know, I don't want to get out of touch. And I think that's a caution when you get, I mean, all that you said is right, but you don't want to get out of touch. And I get sometimes criticized for being too accessible. But I'd rather be on that side of it than the other side. And especially when you walk in these roles which have, you know, stuff around them that you've got to sort of not get enamored with. So and I want to go to the audience. And again, if you have a question directed to one of them, do it. Name, company, and what the question is. So I'm looking forward to this. Chase Wagner with Lockton. Thank you. Love the Jordans. Those are great. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I, I love the snorkeling and scuba diving analogy. And, and how do you find moments to stay inspired to even look up from the snorkeling and keep your eye on the vision of where you're swimming towards? So a, a lot of it is, I, I think, time management, because you can so easily get overwhelmed in this type of role. And that balance between how much of your time are you going to spend looking towards the future and how much of the time are you going to spend in the present or rear view mirror. I agree with Jim, you have to be present, but think about the form that that takes. It can be walking around and talking to people more casually versus meetings and just guard your calendar very carefully. You don't have to be in every meeting. You shouldn't be in every meeting. Um, it will change the dynamic of meetings. So pick and choose where and how you're going to show up and then make sure you have enough time to constantly th be thinking about the future. And also enough self-awareness. If you know, if you're honest with yourself and know that there are going to be things that you gravitate to because you're comfortable with or you know everything and can answer all those questions, that's where you really need to kind of take yourself out and be present, but be present in a much different way, in a less time consuming way. Question over here. Next one. Hi, Sarah Nolting. I work for Toyota Material Handling, so forklift side. Obviously, we all are, are marketers and there's new trends around every corner. How do you cut through that noise to maintain your path towards a vision, but to not deter your team to like continue to keep that motivation and that employee effort? How do you go about that? 
Brad, why don't you start? Yeah. Well, I mean, I one of the things, and it's a kind of a, to answer the back end of your question too, and I'll lead it to the next one, is I do think the innate value that you bring as the CMO in the C-suite is how well you know the consumer or, or the customer. Like to me, you, I should know that better than anybody else. And so that's kind of as I come into, like if I know that, that's the value that I have. And Norm was dropping pearls of wisdom yesterday with what he's, what he's talking about. But that, in, in terms of coming into it, I think that's the value. And then just make a quick point for what Jim said. I do feel like I was terrified all the time that I was becoming like disconnected from what was happening. You get treated differently. You don't have as much access to things. And, and all of a sudden you feel like, well, I'm a marketer. If I don't have my fingertips on stuff, like what's going to, how am I going to know what's good, what's bad, what's actually happening with the consumer. And so I do feel that in terms of the, the value that you bring, being on, that, on the tip of the spear for what's happening with the consumer, what's happening in culture, and what's happening in technology is something that I, I should be bringing that every day to my, my peers, and they should know that I'm the person that's going to be delivering that. I think with, with that, with that kind of like feeling that I know who that consumer is, that helps me, I think, to answer your question a little bit, like prioritize what matters and what doesn't matter. Because if the mindset that I have is always like, okay, what, what problem am I solving? How am I adding value? Um, how am I adding additional value to that consumer experience? That helps me understand and prioritize everything else that we're doing. And when I've lost track of that, when I lose track of like that the consumer's the epicenter, then I start sometimes will create things that maybe not as valuable for the organization that we're running on. But when I stay centered on that's, that's, that's my North Star, the consumer, the experience, obviously the purpose of our brand and what we're trying to achieve, I feel like it helps us prioritize in a way that's really undeniable. So in a way that that's, that's kind of what we, a way that we focus on it and try to figure out, like we have a list of the things that a consumer will want through their experience. And obviously we can only do the top three. And so that's where we focus on. And if we learn something that should pop above them, we do that. But, but that's, that's the kind of the North star that, that we, that we try to employ over here. Anthony Taguchi with Vanguard. Thank you for coming in reflecting with your experience with the board. What advice would you give to CMOs and even executive marketers in influencing and working with the board? Great question. Erica, let me start with you. In, in my particular role, I don't have a lot of direct interaction with our, our board members. I support people who do. And so, you know, understanding where they're most focused. Um, and the simplest thing is, and this, you know, might sound obvious, they, they're beholden to the shareholder. <laughs> And so whatever you're delivering every 90 days is what they're, you know, du jour is what they're going to care the most about. Where I can be helpful in sort of not only influencing the board and how things get discussed, but also what comes back in my direction is how we talk about the performance of our business. So that's sort of the storytelling. And, and it's interesting because we develop drugs that take a long time to make it to market. And so how are you talking about the latest trial readout matters a lot for our share price. And so that is, it, it, I don't know if that really answered your question, but that's sort of where and how um, I interact with the board. Any other thoughts on that? It's an important question. Yeah. I mean, a couple things. I actually joined a board on the other side and it's been like eye-opening to be sitting on the other <clears> side <throat> of the table and the questions that I have. And I almost had to do that to like force myself to be like, okay, okay what am I, how, if I'm sitting in this seat versus sitting in that seat. And so sometimes even running that exercise for yourself of what questions would I ask if I was a board member versus if I was a part of the C-suite is a good, is a good way to kind of understand where people are going to care about what. Each of the board members has kind of their own, I feel like has a little bit of their own agenda that they're thinking of or what's important to them. So one of the other good tips that I got early on was like, seek them out individually to, to, to build mm -hmm. relationships and talk to them about what they care about. We, uh, on the Code Epoxy board, we have some amazing investors and amazing kind of business operators. And in particular, there's a couple of them that I seek out all the time. And having those individual relationships outside of the quarterly meeting 
is massively beneficial. And the board members want they want they want to give that advice. They want to give that expertise. So I think there's ways as you get into it to, to just like you would any kind of relationship you're building that you can have with with a board that will make your make your work a lot better. Another question back here. Hi, Danielle from JP Morgan. I was wondering if you could talk about some of the routines that you have that enable you to focus and be a strong leader. Like what are the disciplines and routines that enable you to perform at a high level? So sure. I am a time management freak. And I, <laughs> I attribute it to my days as a broker when uh, I remember when I first started out, I was told, look, the market back when the market had opening, closing, not 24 hour trading. These are the hours during which you earn your paycheck. This is it. You eat what you kill, use your time wisely. And I'll never forget that. And it's served me well as I've gone to other positions. I get up 5.15 every morning and I use the first, I would say, hour and a half of my morning, a combination of exercising and reading. I don't look at email. I, it's a black hole. You'll get sucked into that. Um, so I, I really find that that's the perfect way to start my day and then managing my calendar. So I have that time to think about the future of the business. And I, just a, a little anecdote, I was in your seat in 2019, I was here participating in this program and I walked away with a, a lot of great insight. But the one thing that really struck me is being here, being away from the office and having that dedicated time to think and connect was the most valuable thing ever. You need to do that every day in a C-suite role. You should be doing it constantly, but carving out the time will be the challenge. So. Be mindful of that. The other two, one ritual, one ritual you have or one practice. So the, the time management issues, mm -hmm. I manage my energy as much as, as anything. Like where am I in a given day? What, what is my energy level? I'm not a morning person. I do not do anything hard in the morning except get out of bed and get on my yoga mat. <laughs> Those are two <laughs> things I need to do. I have a ritual around, um, and, I, and I didn't do it this week, but I have a thing about not missing Monday for my workout. I missed it yesterday, but um, I work out four or five times a week if I can. And there's just something about Monday, either during the morning or the end of the day, whenever I can. But I do something every Monday. Brad, how about yourself? I mean, we're, we're a remote company, so I work, I work out of my house. And so I feel like things I never would have done before working, you know, out of, out of a corporate headquarters, going on a quick walk, shooting some baskets in my, in my backyard. Those are things that are, that are easy to do that I've introduced as rituals. The other thing I would say that I add into it, though, and this is partially being remote, but partially being inspired in, in places like this, is I'm trying to be as intentional as I can about once a week having a, call, a phone call with a, a mentor or someone that inspires me. Mm -hmm. And because uh, the amount of like just time, it doesn't have necessarily anything to do with my job, but I get ideas from other people all the time. Um, and so that's where I, I, I really try to be intentional about setting those up. And I look forward to those calls. Those are, they're, they're, they're great. And they're people I want to stay in contact with. Usually in other industries outside of mine, so they're agency people, they're consultant people, they're you know previous people I've worked with, and that that's a ton of energy and it's a ton of good ideas usually that I get from those things. 
My name is Brooke Jennings. I'm with Regeneron. I think there is an eternal struggle from a marketing perspective in general of the blocking and tackling that has made you successful to date and the push for innovation that always comes. In the CMO role, how do you help balance that? Because you can cause the anxiety in a bad way or a good way. Which way do you choose? First of all, I have a great team around me and I have great folks that kind of help me balance that. Um, one of the questions that I raised was, you know, I... I like to be highly engaged. It's part of my leadership philosophy. And my engagement can create churn. Just the fact that you've sent me something and I've looked at it and I've weighed in on it. Now somebody has gone, has to do something about that, even if it was fine, right? Mm -hmm. Part of my way of balancing sort of the, the day to day and sort of the nuts and bolts of marketing versus what we have to do to move our organization forward. One, it's a large organization. So I, a lot of it is just, I, I cannot, I'm one human person and there's 24 hours in a day. The second piece for me though, is I spend a lot of time very worried about the amount of things that we do that are not impactful. There's a lot of work, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of time. And so anything, when you talk about being a bulldozer, I can do to sort of really keep our eyes on where we have to go. We have to do more with less, everybody knows that. We have to do more with more in some respects in terms of being able to get more content to people. And we're not built to do it right now. And so part of my, my guiding post is to not lose sight of that, have empathy for the people that are still in the messy middle of transition, of doing the old thing while we have the new thing to take on and getting us through that as quickly as possible. So right now I'm not super popular in my organization sometimes because there's a lot of Band-Aid ripping we're doing, right? If we could do this slow and this could just drag out for two years or we're just gonna have a hellish three months and we're just gonna get through this and then we get to something better on the outside. I've chosen that path. And in doing so, I can't get into the blocking and tackling because we're too busy in the middle of the, of, of the transition. Yeah. I have a tip for you. Most marketing groups don't work on the right stuff. They're working on a lot of activities that are not related to the fundamental purpose of your company or brand. So what I did when I went <clears> into P&G is we did an audit of the work and we decided what we wanted the work to be. What does a world-class marketing organization work on? Because what you work on is what's important. It's what you value. So we repurposed the work of P&G Marketing, and we were intentional about it. We were public about it. Then we decided three capabilities we need to build. So we didn't get overwhelmed by all the change. Here are three things we want to build into a competitive advantage. So here's the work we're all going to do. You're going to be measured for this. We're going to build skills in this. Here are the three big capabilities. And I didn't do it in a silo. We did it together, very inclusive. But that was so liberating, so liberating, and such a statement about who we are, where we're going, and what's important. It's in our control. But my warning to you is my guess is what your groups are working on, especially when you get to the C-suite, you have to understand it and decide if that's the work you want them to do to build, to reach your ambition as a company. I definitely agree with that statement. I think the clear you can be with your priorities, with your goals, and then constantly socialize that to the team. Keep it top of mind. Um, I do think a lot of marketing departments do that, but they do it maybe at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And then it's, I'll call it launch and leave, yeah. never to be yeah. seen again. And everyone on your team every day should be asking <clears throat> themselves, is what they're working on laddering up to those priorities? And if they're not, they need to have a really hard look at how they're spending their time, how they're spending the money, and stop it if it's not value added. And then let everybody know, we are not doing this anymore. <laughs> it's hard to stop work. 
It is. It's, no, uh, it's totally. so hard. Yes. And even when it's a rational decision, yeah. right? Like people get that. They say, yeah, we're looking at the data. This isn't right. What I've been struck by is, well, for starters, for some people, this is the thing they're going to do that year that affects their performance rating, whether or not they get promoted. So the attachment to it goes far beyond whether or not it's delivering the ROI and making it okay to stop work that it doesn't mean your seat's in jeopardy. It means there's more important things I need for you to spend your time on and maybe maybe get a little bit of your life back because I've also got an overwhelmed team that are working really hard. It, it's so much deeper than the decision to stop something. It is, you, ha you get into ego and identity and far too many people attaching their personal worth to their job. When you start to make these calls, like it is, you know, the psychologist part of my job was not something I thought I signed up for. And yet it's there in order to get people comfortable with that. So I'm going to come back to my panel in a minute for their last closing piece of advice for getting prepared for the C-suite. So think about that. But I want to turn it to you. You've been listening. You've been asking questions. You've been processing this. So I want all of you to pop up and share one actionable insight that you are taking home that you're going to think about doing or sharing with your team. You've been taking notes, you've been thinking. So this all is only meaningful, it turns into action. So who wants to start? So one actual insight right here, Chase. Time management, I'm gonna get ruthless about it. Ruthless about time management, love it. What's the next one? Talking to a mentor or um, some expert in outside of your initial realm. Beautiful. Making sure I'm more accessible, especially in the hybrid environment. Making time in your schedule to think snorkeling and diving and thinking about the time right. between the split between snorkeling and diving great build relationships before you need them ask the best possible question to kind of get out of my head and uh, get rid of that imposter syndrome create a shared vision for the team about what we're going to deliver create a business case for abandonment stopping work and working with your team coaching them through it because i definitely feel that and they get scared so stopping work and coaching them through it yeah and, and to add to that Ensuring the employee knows it's not a reflection of their self-worth mm. to pull that away. Yeah, yeah. Panel, your reaction to that? I think I took some stuff away. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Super. Now, I'd like you to now share one piece of closing advice as they enter into a corporate role, CMO role, enterprise role to get prepared for it. You know, as marketers, you're creating culture probably within your own, own businesses, your own teams, and you're also trying to create culture, obviously, with the work that you do you're building a brand externally. Think about, I guess, as you head into that role, how are, how are you gonna create culture for the organization, the whole company? Because as marketing goes, a lot of time an organization goes. And while you could say, well, that's the human resources person's role, I feel like in a lot of ways, the culture that you create through the innovation that you're trying to drive, the brand building that you're doing through how well you know the consumer is actually driven a lot by marketing. And so that's something that you can definitely be known for and definitely like help a company take it to the next level by by the cultural kind of like push that you can make as, as brand builders in the C-suite. Lisa. If it's a role you know you want, start thinking about it and preparing for it now and thinking about how you're gonna show up and thinking about what you are willing to risk, what you're willing to sacrifice to be in that role. That's a heavy one. Sorry. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's true. It's Be honest true. with yourself if you want it. Absolutely true. Erica. You belong. You, you've earned the spot here and there and into the future. 
And you earn your pay on the hard stuff. Nearly everything that comes my way is hard in some way. And it's because you've got great people on your team. You've led them. So they take care of all the easy stuff you can do in your sleep. And you're left with um, some of the harder things. And that's what you're there to do. And, and that's, that's part of the role. That's a good close. Let's pick up our boom whackers and give it up for our panel. <laughs> that's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.